Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone and the Libertarian Institute. Today, I am joined by Dr. Benjamin Powell. He is the executive director of the Free Market Institute at Texas Tech University and a professor of economics in the Rawls College of Business and a senior fellow with the Independent Institute. Dr. Powell, thank you so much for your time. All right, Keith. Happy to be with you. You wrote a book called Wretched Refuse, the Political Economy of immigration and institutions. What do people need to know about immigration? All right. So what this does, so economists and social scientists who study immigration find overwhelmingly that there's massive economic gains to the immigrants, but also the societies where they arrive, the natives become a little bit wealthier. There's a challenge to that that says, what if they undermine, and this will be relevant for your audience, undermine our freedoms, our economic freedoms, our property rights. They bring, you know, imagine uh, socialist immigrants from Cuba come and recreate Cuban socialism in Florida, well, that would destroy our productivity, evaporate these economic gains and make us worse off. Now, of course, I choose Cuban immigrants from Florida for a reason, because I can think of no better anti-socialist voting bloc in the United States than Cuban immigrants. Well, what this book does is it takes the idea seriously that they could undermine institutions. And we look at it a whole bunch of different ways across lots of countries, doing case studies and say, what happens when more immigrants come? What does it do to the institutions? And For the most part, it doesn't affect a lot of them. For some, it makes us a little bit more free. And in some dramatic cases, it tends to make us a lot more free. When it comes to social cohesion, having sort of a center point that people can rally around, it doesn't seem like saying, well, we're all Americans really matters much. I think the average person would say, well, America was founded by colonialist racist slave owners. So America's more or less nothing. When it comes to building social cohesion between uh, Americans plus immigrants coming to America, do you guys uh, have any ideas as to uh, how we can sort of uh, lead the way? in uh, harmonizing our uh, individual interests like that? Yeah, well, I think it matters about what your social cohesion is around. And if they're around the ideas of the founding principles of the United States and individual liberty and freedom, then that's a good thing. If they're to collectivist uh, cohesive beliefs, then that would be undermine our institutions and make us worse off. So I think rather than some of what's taught in American schools right now, I think would be better to be proud of the American heritage and where we come from and teach the ideas of individual responsibility, liberty, and the melting pot type idea of America of the Ellis Island generation of immigration. I think the problems that we get in terms of ideology are really more about the uh, education here within the United States rather than the beliefs of foreigners per se. You wrote a book, Out of Poverty, Sweatshops in the Global Economy. What is it that people uh, need to understand about sweatshops that uh, you discuss in this book? Yeah, well, it's funny that you link these two together right away because uh, <laughs> the people who read the first one don't believe that I wrote the second one and vice versa quite often. Because if you hear me talk about immigration, they'll say, well, he's obviously a campus liberal. And if they read the out of poverty one, I'm obviously a corporatist capitalist shill. Instead, there's actually something about free trade that I think runs through both of them. So the main argument in out of poverty is that sweatshops provide a step out of poverty for some of the poorest people in the world. This was true in our nation's history. I grew up in Haverhill, Massachusetts, the shoe city. Uh, My undergraduate was from University of Massachusetts, Lowell, the heart of the Industrial Revolution. And my ancestors worked in things that we'd call sweatshops today. And that was part of the stage of development. As we accumulate more capital, get better technology, wages rose, working conditions improved, and we moved on to a better life. That process has played out. 
from the United States and Great Britain initially to if we go back to sweatshop countries circa 1960, we're talking about South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong. And then instead of about a hundred year transformation of something like pre-industrial to post sweatshop, they're about a generation. Then you look at what's going on in Vietnam today and places like that where sweatshops are. Workers take these jobs because it's better than their next best alternative. Now, we can aspire to have better alternatives for them, and that's what part of the process of development does. But you don't make somebody better off by taking away their least bad alternative, which is what these sweatshops often are. So we could maybe see that uh, the, using the legislative powers to force people to not be able to work there. Well, maybe that's bad. But shouldn't we sort of collectively decide to boycott these organizations to decrease their bargaining power and maybe give them an incentive to pay the laborers more? No. So boycotts dry up the demand for the products, which dries up the demand for the labor that pushes down wages and destroys jobs and pushes people back into subsistence agriculture. That's the wrong direction to go. Unless it's something like what goes on in the Uyghur province in China now and what they're doing with forced internment of people and making them produce things. That's slave labor. And you do want to drive up the dry up, excuse me, dry up the demand for that. But for places where workers voluntarily take their jobs, boycotting them ends up throwing them back to the worst alternatives. You go back to sweatshops uh, from the year uh, 1780 all the way up until, I believe, uh, 2020. Just amazing research in uh, in this book. At any point, did you sort of uh, find uh, there being a lot of influential politicians or philosophers that gave us the idea that offering someone a job is evil exploitation, but offering someone nothing, no products and no services, well, that's great. And you're a member of the proletariat and we need to riot together. How That seems so backwards. How did that idea ever come to so many people? Yeah, I mean, I think you find it more in philosophy than, than economics, maybe. But the idea that there's certain minimum standards that you must agree to interact with somebody and it would be wrong to interact with them on any less than that, but that somehow it's not wrong to ignore them at all. So in the context of sweatshops, the company that exclusively buys made in the USA labor and benefits unionized wealthy workers in the United States is somehow more moral than a company that goes and gives a step up to poor workers in Indonesia that doesn't meet the threshold that the philosopher believes is necessary, but seems to be making their lives better than someone who's ignoring them. I've always found that to be a strange position. When it comes to... Uh, us being able to visually see, all right, South Korea, Singapore, America, Great Britain, they did have all these sweatshops, and now they're much wealthier than they were previously. But in a lot of these places, you could find government legislation or uh, labor-supported laws uh, coming about at the same time as we see these labor improvements. How are we able to determine whether an increase in the standard of living is the result of free markets or government legislation? Yeah, I address exactly this in the book, Keith. So by the way, most poor countries today also have anti-child labor laws and things like that that just largely aren't enforced. Now, but if you go back into our history, the United States' first anti-child labor law was passed in the 1840s in Massachusetts. Uh, here's what it said. Children under 12 years of age can't work more than 10 hours per day in a factory. So 11-year-old, 60-hour work weeks, which were the norm then of 10 hours, Monday through Saturday. That was fine, just no more than that. And once you're 12, that doesn't apply. And you can find these types of restrictions in other US states. You can find them in Great Britain. You can find them in France. Back when we were poorer and less productive, 
the laws that they passed were largely symbolic. They weren't binding. They didn't stop actual child labor. And the same goes for health and safety laws and other things like that. What we find is as the economy grew, children left the workforce, work poor, uh, workplace safety improved, and laws continued to be passed that largely codified what was already going on. We didn't get national child labor law in the United States, anti-child labor law in the United States until 1938, basically once we were past the stage of sweatshop development anyway. And economists, when they study both anti-child labor laws and mandatory school attendance laws, they find once you control for economic growth, these laws did little to change children working or attending school. That tells me that they're basically trailing the market process of development and codifying what's already happening. And, you know, maybe picking up a laggard here or there, but the thrust of the change comes from us becoming more productive and richer. And by the way, that makes sense. Most of us don't want our kids working, but when you're in extreme poverty, sometimes that child labor is necessary to feed, clothe, shelter the family. As soon as you get those needs taken care of, child labor tends to decrease. And we can see this in modern times too. Uh, we look particularly at one uh, study that was done in Vietnam, tracking individual families. And it's not just a nice linear relationship as economic growth, like this, like this on the screen, as economic growth goes up, child labor goes down. No, it's like jumps. Once you get out of extreme poverty, like you can get 2000 calories per family member, big drop in child labor. Then around food, shelter, clothing, the official poverty line, boom, another big drop. And that was going on during a decade of growth in Vietnam in the 1990s that tracked individual families and the children working with them. With things like inflation, it can be very difficult to measure economic growth because money doesn't necessarily mean you have a ton of growth. We've seen hyperinflation in Zimbabwe and Germany and a number of other places. What are some reliable metrics we can use to judge whether an economy is growing, stagnating, or shrinking? Uh, okay. I'm going to try not to get too much of an econ dork on you here right now. So, I mean, when economists talk about prices or talk about income statistics, we're always adjusting for inflation. But inflation adjustments are not perfect. Um, there's lots of things that make them either understate or overstate, depending what's going on. But when we're talking about like long run development, if we look at things like GDP per capita, life expectancy, literacy, uh, headcount at the poverty line of extreme poverty, all these things tend to go in the same direction. You get some places where there's some weird anomalies, but for the most part, they move together and that's a sign of economic development and growth. An anomaly would be like Cuba's healthcare statistics and the life expectancy in Cuba versus how poor they are on other margins. Uh, and uh, PS, part of that is them cooking the books. Well, uh, I guess we could measure that to Cuban Americans and see if it's maybe a cultural thing. Um, ha has that uh, ever been done? Do you know of uh, any stats like that? Well, no. Part of what they're doing is literally cooking the books. They make people have forced abortions on high-risk pregnancies. And if you kill the baby before it's born, it doesn't make it into life expectancy statistics. If it dies shortly after birth, uh, a one-week-old dying does a lot to move the number when your average is 80 years old. It hurts your life expectancy statistics. That's part of it. The other part is they centrally plan an economy and they force a lot of resources into healthcare uh, at the expense of other things people would like. Anyway, that's just an example of a weird anomaly one. But for the most part, these things go together. So if I look at uh, people in America, assume I'm just a nationalist, and I say I want the working class, as if other people don't work, I want these people to have higher incomes. I want them to be wealthier. Why should I support free markets? 
well, free markets are the best at delivering that for the working class. The working class is going to be sensitive to the price of all of the things that they consume. If we free if we trade freely with the rest of the world and bring in more a greater variety of products at cheaper prices for them, that makes their real earnings, their income, go up. Now, what it does is it changes the mix of the jobs the working class, and for that matter, everybody else in the United States, is best suited to do when we trade with people in other countries who are more suited, in econ speak, have lower opportunity costs of producing particular goods. And by the way, the same game is true with immigration or with international trade. They're both two different ways to do international trade. Both change the mix of jobs that native-born Americans are best suited to do, and both make the pie bigger for Americans overall as a result. Neither impacts the total number of jobs available for the native-born population. It changes the mix. And in fact, all of the gains from international trade or migration, if you don't shuffle the mix of jobs, you don't get the gains. So the reshuffling that comes with trade or migration that people bemoan is part of the necessary process of freeing labor up from things that it's not relatively best suited to do and reallocating it to where it can create greater value. You wrote a book called Socialism Sucks. Two economists drink their way through the unfree world. Now, uh, socialism, uh, I guess you could define it as simply helping people and making sure that no one's in absolute poverty. What's wrong with that? Well, that's not the definition of socialism. If we just talk about pleasant outcomes and, uh, you know, milk and honey, everything feels nice. So socialism meant something to Marx. It meant something to, you know, more than 100 years of economists who have studied it. And people throw this world around. And by the way, on both the left and the right, misrepresent what socialism is. Socialism means abolishing private ownership of the major factors of production, your capital, your machinery, your businesses, and replacing them, I'll say, with some form of collective ownership in practice for any large society. This means state ownership of the major means of production. That's what it meant under Marx. That's what it meant in the Soviet Union. That meant That's what it's meant to both uh, Marxist and free market economists who've talked about this for over a century. When it comes to uh, the back end, the distribution of things, you might hear a lot of democratic socialists say, you know what, it's not the factors of production we want to control. It's once all that once all those goods are produced, we then want to be able to tax and then redistribute those goods. Is that a, a different sort of economic system or is yeah. that as other people would? define socialism, the institutionalized aggression against private property. No. So listen, that I mean, it is an infringement on private property rights, but it's not the wholesale abolition of private property and the major factors of production, which once you do, you're going to replace with some system of command and control of how you organize economic activity. Because some people will talk about socialism from below or squishy terms like this, as if stuff just comes together. Like, no, you need like prices in a market economy coordinate production. When you get rid of private property, you get rid of the prices that coordinate, you got to replace it with something that's state central planning. Now, when we talk about a welfare state, I think there's plenty of problems with the welfare state. My guess is having a libertarian podcast, a lot of your viewers probably do too. However, we should not mistake them for socialism. So Sweden, which is the first chapter of, of that book that we visit, uh, is a prime example of this. Uh, Sometimes Fox News will say that socialist Sweden and same at the same time, Bernie Sanders, when you say, how could you be elected as a socialist? You say, well, I mean, like Sweden, both of these things are bullshit. Sweden is a capitalist economy. 
Volvo is privately owned. Go to a restaurant or a hotel. It's privately owned. Prices coordinate activity. They have pretty close to free international trade, strong private property rights, sound money, light regulation of business. What Sweden does have is really high taxes and redistribution in a welfare state and a bunch of labor market regs. I think that's messed up. And when it was at its worst, it dragged down Swedish growth. Sweden was laissez-faire from mid-19th century to mid-20th century. They grew to be the fourth wealthiest nation in the world. They put in their big welfare state and high taxes. It didn't impoverish them like socialism. It slowed their growth. So they became bottom half of the OECD countries, you know, the club of rich countries, from fourth in the world down to the bottom tail. Other people grew past them. I think that's a problem, but I wouldn't confuse it with socialism. When you mention light regulations, uh, can you think of any regulations that America has that they don't in Sweden? <laughs> well, these last couple of years, yeah, that's really freaking easy. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. Sweden, in addition to doing pretty well in the economic freedom indexes, over, so there's something, by the way, your listeners should look it up, called uh, uh, Economic Freedom of the World Annual Report. Uh, the website is freetheworld.org is the easy one to remember. And you could get a listing of countries measured economic freedom across five big areas. Sweden usually falls in the top quarter of the index, but somewhere 25 to 35-ish, something like that. So too of Norway and the rest of the Nordic countries. But in these last few years, of course, Sweden regulated COVID re re relatively right lightly. And I would say, you know, we've seen hygiene socialism around the world or a form of it these last few years of command and control bureaucrats telling us, what market activities and social activities we can engage in and not. And Sweden did relatively little of that. And by the way, so did the rest of the Nordic countries. They all come out good on this too. And uh, I actually just published a new study today or released a new study today that adjusts the economic freedom rankings for the COVID restrictions. And sure enough, Sweden pops up even higher into the capitalist rankings. And so does actually Norway and Finland go up really high, but all of them do very well on that. So uh, mandatory workplace closures, stay-at-home orders. Those are things Sweden wasn't getting that we all got the last few years. Yeah, really. When it comes to uh, Swedish uh, immigrants to America and uh, taking their net worth versus the net worth of the average Swede, did you guys measure that uh, by any chance? Hmm. No, we didn't. I suspect the average, hmm, I don't know. Got it. When it comes to- I, I, could, uh, I could guess, but it would really just be guessing. When it comes to uh, the concept of private property, you might think that uh, this would give some people a great amount of institutional power and allow them to be selfish at the expense of the rest of us. Why is private property, what is private property, and why is it important? Well, here's the thing. With private property or capitalism, you have competition. So the only way you get something from somebody else is by offering them a deal they accept. I offer you this, you can take or you cannot take. And it might be that you might not have very many other offers that look better, but you still have the ability to say no. Under socialism, there's a monopoly called the state. And remember, state ownership of the means of production means they're going to dictate how everything gets put together and made. And by the way, you are part of the means of production. Labor is one of the factors of the means of production. You can't control an economy without controlling the laborers. There, you don't have choice. You have command. And by the way, you lose your other type of choice too, your political voice, your political choice. So economists since the great Ludwig von Mises have known that economic calculation under socialism is impossible. But there's another type of thing that's not a, quite an impossibility, but it almost is. And that's maintaining democratic freedoms while having a socialist government. 
So if you look around the world, economically free, democratically free tend to go together, unfree, unfree to go together. The off diagonals are kind of rare. You get some exceptions like Singapore where you don't have political freedoms, but you have economic freedoms. But what you don't see is that other off diagonal of, oh, democratic socialism. We have no economic freedom, but we have our democratic freedoms. Because once you centralize control over the means of production, you've centralized the ability to punish opposition. You can't maintain a free and independent political voice against a regime if they control your economic livelihood. So the only example that I can think of in recent years that approximated this was Venezuela. And notice I said was. So Maduro, excuse me, Chavez was democratically elected in 1998. He democratically put in a new socialist constitution. And then soon thereafter, people lost their free democracy. Uh, their economic freedoms went to hell. Now, for a while, things looked good there. While oil prices were high because they sit on the world's largest oil reserves, uh, they were basically able to export oil, use the earnings to import goodies for Venezuela. Meanwhile, even during the 2000s, when things seemed good, food production was declining in Venezuela. But once 2013 hits and oil prices come down, and by the way, production came down because the state wasn't very good at running an oil company, then the game was up. But like Maduro got reelected with something like 70% of the popular vote recently. But in an economy that had hyperinflation and the average Venezuelan losing more than 20 pounds that year, they didn't all find Jenny Craig. Now, usually high unemployment, high inflation is a good way to get vo voted out of office. Take hyperinflation and literal starvation and you get over 60, 70% voter approval. That tells me that their democracy is a sham. I'm sending Dinesh D'Souza there to see if there were any mules, uh, but casting uh, votes on behalf of the citizens. Uh, when it comes to the claim of inequality, you can walk into places like San Francisco or New York and you will see literal uh, homelessness, people starving and wearing rags. And then you'll see, you know, these mansions, you'll see uh, uh, these skyscrapers, uh, things that are worth billions of dollars, probably. How can you justify the free market system when it creates such drastic inequalities. Yeah, actually, I'd say what you're describing is not the free market system. So I want to be clear that when we talk about free markets or defending capitalism or things like that, that does not synonymous with the current United States. On the spectrum, the United States is more in that direction than some other places, but that's kind of like being the tallest dwarf. So it's interesting that you say San Francisco, New York City. What's one of the big drivers, not the only, but one of the big drivers of homelessness is unaffordable housing. Why do we have unaffordable housing in those places? It's because of government restrictions on building, things that prevent competition from creating more housing and driving down its price to make it more affordable. Uh, California has long been a leader in doing that uh, with putting land off limits, with putting permit moratoria, height restrictions, minimum lot sizes, minimum setbacks, uh, inclusionary zoning, which is a name for price controlling a portion of new development. California is the worst on this. New York's pretty bad too. Uh, I remember a classic study, it's maybe 20 years old now, but and that's before the problem even got as bad as it is in San Francisco. But uh, back then they looked at the difference between the physical construction cost of a new home and the price of a new home and said, how much of this is intrinsically scarce land? If it was scarce land driving it, double the lot size, hold the rest of the house constant, and you should double that differential. Instead, mm -hmm. they found about a 10% change. So 90% of the scarcity was government permission to build, not intrinsically scarce land. This homelessness crisis is in part, a major part, a government created one of not letting capitalism work to build 
or as Brian Kaplan's new book coming out is called Build Baby Build. God, does that guy ever stop writing? Don't be a feminist came out two days ago and he's already coming out with a new one. Uh, <laughs> What are some examples historically of deregulation increasing the quality of goods and services and decreasing the price? Uh, you mean like economy wide? I mean, we have the whole... products or services or countries. Uh. So I think one of the countries that we explore in socialism sucks. That's one of the, the inspiring ones to look at today is the country of Georgia, the former Soviet Republic south of Russia, east of the Black Sea, north of Iran, kind of a tough geographic spot. Uh, and in fact, partially occupied by Russian troops right now and has been for a while. Um, but they had essentially no reform post fall of the Soviet Union until the mid 2000s. You get the Rose Revolution, uh, Mikhail Saakashvili goes around hand handing out roses, gets elected. He puts Kaha Bendukits in as his finance minister. And Kaha would be libertarian enough for you to have on this show and for him to maybe call you or somebody else a statist. He was a hardcore like Rothbardian libertarian type. And they put him in charge as minister of finance. And he did radical privatization of state property, going to the highest bidder, no government handouts, no anything else. And it could even be a foreigner, even a Russian who would buy it. So private property funneled to those who could use it most efficiently drastically cut taxes, got down to a 10% flat tax rate, uh, did massive layoffs of government sector. So he spiked unemployment up to like 30 something percent his first year. Now, most people hear 30% unemployment and they think, oh my God, that's bad. Well, he was firing negative productivity workers. So it actually increased the country's productivity. They had to get reallocated to the private sector where they could create value. But uh, in fact, one of them is he fired the entire country's traffic police in one day and the joke is crime went down because they were some of the most corrupt people in the country. So Georgia, this, this what had been an economic backwater, turned around and started growing dramatically since then. Uh, they're still relatively poor because they were starting from a very low level, uh, but they're about 30% richer than what they would have been in the counterfactual of staying how they were in about a 10-year period of time. And in fact, they, top, they cracked the top 10 of most economically free countries uh, a couple of years ago. You look at a country like America that's very wealthy, that just one of the highest GDPs around, then you see people without access to health care or education. Therefore, the state should step in and provide that education at no cost to those people. This way, no one goes without health care or education. What, if anything, is wrong with that logic? Well, plenty. Uh, they might be able to do it at no cost to somebody, but there is a cost for somebody else always. And then it's a question of how do you ration it if you're not using prices to ration it? And you know, we, I'm sure you've talked before with other guests about the essentially death panels in other countries that have socialist economic, excuse me, healthcare systems. So this is like one area where you think about, you could think about a socialist economy or a socialized industry. And I don't think it's an accident that you're talking about education and healthcare. One of them, education K through 12, is probably 80 to 90% socialized in the United States, government paid and provided, and tremendously inefficient and negligent in, on the job, especially these last two years when teachers unions liked remote work vacations. Healthcare isn't socialized in the United States, but it's almost like a fascist industry where you have nominal private ownership, but extensive mandated government command and control over how the industry functions. And then when it doesn't function well, you ask questions like, how could capitalism solve 
that are why can't capitalism solve these two problems that seem essential? It's like, well, they're two areas where we're not really doing capitalism or free markets in the United States. When it comes to uh, health care, Paul Krugman in 2004 said that 44 percent of uh, health care is paid for and controlled by the state. He didn't also account for the FDA. That was before Medicare Part D, before the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid expansion. It, it's so corrupt that I'm shocked that they use that as an example of uh, when freedom falls short. Uh, final uh, question. In a free market, the worker goes to his job, is told where to sit, what to do. He lives more or less like a high-class slave. Therefore, what we need is for these decisions to not be made by some elites at the top, but to be made democratically in all uh, working institutions. What, if anything, is wrong with that idea? Uh, I work at a university. That's about as close to a worker-run firm as you get with faculty governance. <laughs> and the inefficiency and waste is apparent throughout higher education. When you have people who don't have a stake in the outcome voting on how to allocate resources that other people uh, could otherwise manage. You get all sorts of perverse outcomes. Ultimately, the recourse for workers in a free market, if you don't like the conditions of your job, is to say goodbye and go get another job from another employer who offers you better conditions. Check out the books, Socialism Sucks Out of Poverty and Wretched Refuse. Dr. Ben Powell, thank you so much for your time, sir. All right. Thank you, Keith.